Well, all right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there that you should check out. The good folks at Hip Politics Network. And you can follow the show on Instagram at Here Comes the Pain Pod. That's at Here Comes the Pain P O D Pod. And you can also follow me on Twitter at P A Y N E D C. That's at P A Y N E D C. Good to be back with you. We took a little bit of time off from the last episode. I didn't give you a new episode at the end of last week. Wanted to let everybody enjoy their Father's Day. Want to say a belated Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. I have a wonderful dad in, in my life, my father. Um, also, a little bit of a bittersweet Father's Day for me. Um, lost my godfather, a great man named Clark Payne Jr. We called him affectionately Uncle Buddy. Lost him a couple weeks ago. It's been a tough period for my family, as I'm sure it's been for a lot of families. But um, lifting him up in memory, and I know a lot of folks are doing uh, similar uh, remembering loved ones, especially on a weekend like we just experienced with Father's Day. So want to make sure we say Happy Father's Day there. Really good to be back with you. Lots to talk about, lots to get into. Want to hit a couple of topics today. We want to review the president's big rally or not so big rally, depending on how you look at it, in Tulsa, Oklahoma this past weekend. Talk about some of the things we noticed as relates to how Trump is going to go at Joe Biden this time around. Also want to talk about John Bolton, who for I'm sure folks who are listening to this podcast know John Bolton's background. He's a very well-known conservative in the national security space, really seen as a national security hawk, somebody who wants to go to war with everybody, always wants to you know use military force. So John Bolton, who was a high-level Gosh, I don't even want to use the term diplomat, but was a high level member of the Trump national security team, left that team about a year ago and wrote a book that is very critical of the president. The book is you know, kind of doing the rolling book tour thing now where he's doing all the interviews and you're seeing all the excerpts and some really shocking detail coming from John Bolton. Certainly some interesting firsthand insider account. I want to talk about why. I'm not that interested in hearing what John Bolton has to say. Sure, uh, it's always good to get some perspective from people who have been in organizations, in entities like the Trump administration, but I want to give you a different perspective there on why maybe you should be looking with a jaundiced eye at anybody who comes from that administration. We're going to take a little trip down memory lane, talk about a couple other folks who decided to go to Bolton route. Also, you know, not even considering the fact that John Bolton had an opportunity to testify during the impeachment proceedings and did everything he could do to play active defense against that. So we're, we're going to get into that as well. And we're going to get into some other topics as well. We're going to do some quick hitters towards the end of the podcast. Also want to let you know that we're looking to put out another episode towards the end of this week. So you'll get two episodes this week working on some good guests to help diversify the conversation, make sure that it's not just you listening to me rant and rave with all of my random opinions, but you're hearing from some other really smart people who I've been fortunate enough to connect with and meet with. So um, look out for another podcast by the end of this week.
We're going to take a quick break and we're going to be right back on the Here Comes the Pain podcast and we're going to get into our first topic. Again, it's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne, and we'll be right back. So let's go ahead and get into the first topic today. I want to talk about John Bolton. I also want to talk a little bit about what I call this phenomena of the parasite presidency, which is essentially what the Trump presidency has become. I'm going to get into that. I'm going to lay that out. But first, let's get the basics down here as relates to John Bolton. So as I said in the lead up, John Bolton is somebody who is no stranger to the national security space. He's somebody that um, a lot of political watchers have known about for a long time. He is certainly, you know, when people talk about, you know, if you're a dove or you're a hawk, a hawk is obviously someone who's very aggressive on national security issues. They want to bomb. They want to prep for war. They want more money for uh, hard power, more money for weapons. Um, they want to intimidate the rest of the world, essentially. That's their, that is their objective. That's their, their worldview. John Bolton is essentially as far to the end of the spectrum as you can get in terms of being a hawk, even probably further to the end of the spectrum than, than most mainstream conservatives. You know, a lot of conservatives would even say that John Bolton is all the way to the other end. Frankly, uh, he's probably all the way to the other side of Donald Trump, just in terms of if you look at his politics, you look at Trump's politics, and you look at you know them in public service and, and things that they've said and how they generally like to approach national security challenges. But you know, John Bolton really came to a lot of notoriety during the um, Reagan years. He was an assistant attorney general for Ronald Reagan from 1985 to 1989, and then really came back into the public consciousness as a um, high-level national security official in the George W. Bush presidency. He was the uh, United States ambassador to the United Nations, um, named in 2005 and served in that role for a little bit over a year. And again, somebody who, like a Donald Rumsfeld or you know, like a Paul Wolfowitz, remember those names from the Bush years? He is somebody who was considered a hawk. And, and he is the, the term neoconservative is used to talk about John Bolton. I don't really know what conservatives like to call themselves now, but essentially that is that is how you could describe him. He is a, a pretty straight down the line Republican on all other issues. But in the national security space, he is as far to the extreme on on national security issues as you can get um, in that regard. So anyways. John Bolton was brought into the Trump administration um, in 2018, really a part of a refresh of the president's national security team. It was when you start to see voices like Rex Tillerson and H.R. McMaster, who was his predecessors in NSA. Those folks were moved out because essentially Trump started to unify and centralize power under Pompeo, brought in somebody like Bolton got rid of some of the more moderating national security voices in his orbit. Tom Bossert um, was somebody who was a very key advisor to the president. Bolton requested that he step away. He was really a part of a refresh of that team and really signaled the president making somewhat of a hard, you know, hawk, hard right turn on national security issues. Actually, if you look at the first 18 months or so of the Trump presidency, some of the figures who were there were, again, a little bit more in the center to center right lane. Um, they weren't really the hardcore, 
you know, let's go to war with everybody. Let's push for regime change everywhere around the world. Bolton, his entry into the Trump administration in 2018 as NSA, that really signaled a change along with a couple of other moves. So anyways, Bolton is there. And I think predictably, most people assumed that there was going to be some bumping of the heads between Trump and Bolton. These, again, are two very strong-willed individuals. That's probably the understatement of the century. Donald Trump is who he is. Bolton is uh, very, very much uh, leaning into who he is as a national security expert. And listen, despite the fact that I disagree with his worldview, he's very well-respected just in terms of the discipline and understanding the issues. He just his solutions are way out of whack and way out of the mainstream of what most people think. But he is somebody who, you know, fancies himself as an intellectual in that space. So, of course, that's going to lead to a lot of tension between he and this president in particular. And it didn't take very long before those issues began to surface. There were issues that came up around regime change in places around the world. There were issues related to how Trump was dealing with North Korea, how Trump was dealing with Iran and things like the Iran nuclear deal. You know, people would try to read the tea leaves about whether or not Trump was moving a little bit more towards Bolton's worldview or whether Trump was kind of going on his own path. Um, And then I think also around how Trump was going to deal with the issues in Syria. Anyways, a lot of stuff happening, I would say, in the 2018-19 range of time in the Trump administration, Bolton was really a central figure. And the relationship with the president started to deteriorate. And again, this was predictable. So, you know, as a lot of people in the Trump orbit go, Bolton, you know, becomes out of favor in in the president's national security orbit. Pompeo kind of steps in and takes on a little bit more power. Um, There was always assumed to be a real rivalry between Pompeo and Bolton. You know, there's probably some interesting research that will be done after this administration. Uh, God help us, hopefully, uh, in about five or six months when uh, we're looking at Donald Trump as a post-president or as a former president than the current president. But there'll be some interesting, you know, uh, research done on someone like Mike Pompeo and some of the steps that he took to really grab power and to really unify the president around his worldview and around his decision-making apparatus, moving out a lot of voices that might contradict Pompeo. That, that's a really interesting case study, but, that, but that's an aside. So anyways, Bolton is out of favor. And of course, as many people in the Trump orbit find themselves, they find themselves on the outs. I believe it was somewhere in the neighborhood of three to four months where the president was openly musing about getting rid of Bolton and and Bolton maybe being wrong on some key national security issues, even when Bolton was in better favor in the administration, the president would muse about whether or not uh, he thought that Bolton was right. He would kind of almost take his his, you know, not so public, you know, bull sessions with his his cabinet and he would make them public. So eventually Bolton is on the outs and eventually Bolton leaves. Well, when Bolton leaves, it's timed around the time of of, you know, essentially what happened related to Trump's impeachment in the summer of 2019 or in the late summer of 2019. And concurrently, as these things are going on, it comes to find out that Bolton is working on a book, really 
a really in-depth memoir. You know, Bolton is thought of one of these folks that kind of takes notes, takes copious notes at every meeting he's in. Probably one of the people or one of the types of people that really makes someone like Donald Trump nervous because they like to keep a record of everything. Donald Trump doesn't like to write things down, one, because that would require some work. And two, that's called evidence. Um, so Donald Trump does not share John Bolton's worldview on that type of stuff. So, again, it comes to light. Bolton is working on this book. Bolton um, gets this big $2 million, uh, you know, advance for, you know, working with, I believe it's Simon & Schuster, who's the the publisher of the book. Anyway, when you get down to the nitty-gritty, all of the sourcing starts to come out in some reporting around the Beltway that Bolton is really going to peel back the layers on the Trump administration and talk about the president, how he makes decisions, some potentially embarrassing Uh, moments in the president's follies and national security and the president and his team claim executive privilege. And and there's this long drawn out battle about whether or not Bolton can actually talk about this. There's this long drawn out battle about executive privilege. It's tied up in impeachment Bolton. It should be added by the way, even though he apparently had a lot to say when they were willing to write a big check did not really trip over himself to go and talk to Adam Schiff and talk to Jerry Nadler and talk to the, the folks that Nancy Pelosi had set up to lead the impeachment effort. Bolton was somewhat playing active defense. He was he was publicly teasing with the process, but it was pretty clear from how he was acting. He wanted all of this information to come out in his book. He was self-interested to preserve everything for the book, which again gets to something that I'm going to talk about in a second, which is what does John Bolton really want to do here? So, you know, we get past impeachment. Obviously, we are where we are now with the pandemic, with all the issues that have happened. And, you know, a few weeks ago, Bolton excerpts of Bolton's book start to come out. And, and mind you, some of these things are still tied up in litigation. Like there are active cases that the president and his team are threatening legal action for. And then eventually they actually, uh, you know, went forward with suing to stop publication of the book. Bolton's team got several positive reactions from the court, uh, several positive decisions, I should say, from the court that led them to believe that they were on relatively safe legal ground. And so Bolton has done this media tour over the last, I'd say, week, week and a half. And you're going to see Bolton on all the Sunday shows and you'll see him on the nightly news and you'll see him with all the the heavy political reporters. And they're going to go chapter and verse into this book. Uh, mainly because he wants to sell more books. He wants to be a New York Times bestseller, and he wants to make Simon & Schuster very wealthy and sell a lot of books. So, anyways, I give all that background just to give you some grounding in John Bolton, but that's not really the issue here. What we're seeing with Bolton is something that we've seen a number of times with other folks in this White House and this president's orbit. And it's these people who find religion after they leave Trump. And I have this theory that it's it's really not them finding religion. It's really not them having a change of heart. They're done with Trump at a certain point. He's disposable. You know, what we notice about the relationships in Trump world is that as disposable as these people are to Trump, Trump is disposable to them as well. Because you have a president, one, who doesn't know anything. And I'm, I, you know, look, I try to avoid ad hominem attacks against people, but Donald Trump and curiosity have never met in betweenst. Okay. So he doesn't really know anything and doesn't care to know anything. He doesn't have a political core, uh, a core ideology 
which I think actually a lot of people thought early on was a benefit for him. And some people might suggest, well, that gives him the freedom to not be married to orthodoxy and to not be married to a worldview. I actually think that's a good point, but you do have to have some curiosity and some grounding of knowledge of like a theory of how you do things, right? Like Barack Obama entered the presidency without really a central core ideology, or it was kind of a, you saw what you wanted to see when you looked at him and you looked at how he would make decisions. But there was a consistent thread in how Barack Obama acted, what his values were, um, what his principles were, and and how he was going to lead when he eventually became president. Donald Trump, there's none of that. So I think because there is a lack of, again, any core political ideology or core political ethos, it creates this vacuum where these opportunists step in and they say, wow, this is a, an opportunity for me. And we're talking about Bolton right now, but I can go on down the list and name dozens of people, some high profile, some less high profile, who thought, well, hey, this Trump thing is really great because he really doesn't care about a lot of these issues. He might care about like four or five of them because his base cares about them. But all the other stuff he doesn't really care about because he doesn't know about. All he cares about is being the president, having power, being able to look strong and powerful and look like he's got a, a grip on the Republican Party and look like he's being true to his base. That's all he cares about. That's his ideology. OK, but you've got Bolton, all the things that we just talked about here. You know, Bolton saw the vacuum in Trump's national security orbit or what he perceived to be the vacuum. I don't think he was taking Pompeo into a lot of consideration, but he saw that vacuum and he said, hey, this is a perfect opportunity for me to push my very, very far right hawkish worldview on these you know, national security issues. Bolton said this is the perfect opportunity for me to go and essentially find a a, a winning horse to, to jump on late in the race. John Bolton is not a Trumper. He doesn't think, I mean, you. I didn't need a book to tell me that John Bolton was insulted or that he was offended by Donald Trump and his, his style. Like, yes, John Bolton is a far right wing hawk, but he is somebody who is a product of the system. Everything that Donald Trump stands for and everything that Donald Trump has trumpeted as president and how you do things as a public official runs completely concurrent to John Bolton. But Bolton didn't care about that. All Bolton cared about was power and how to achieve his objectives. And again, even if Trump was unqualified and it was a mess, which it was, and he isn't, right? Even if those things existed, Bolton saw an opportunity. I can go back to Gary Cohn. Remember Gary Cohn? He's the registered Democrat. He's the Wall Street guy, former Goldman guy, someone who has respect on both sides of the aisle, goes and works as I believe he was the head of the NSC in the Trump presidency for probably the first year and a half, two years. It was right around the two year mark that that Cohn left. You know when he left? He left after he got those tax cuts passed that helped out people like him and businesses like the ones that he worked for before he was in the White House. Now he's offended by things that Trump is saying. He's offended that Trump is defending, you know, the protesters in Charlottesville who are shouting, Jews will not replace us. You know, Gary Cohn is a Jewish American, is offended by that. Well, of course you're offended by it, but you didn't care about it when you were working with Donald Trump and you were leveraging that 
ridiculous ideology and that that playing footsie with white supremacists and white nationalists, you didn't care about that when that was benefiting you and helping you get your tax policy written. Let's look at Mitch McConnell. What does Mitch McConnell care about? Judges. Mitch McConnell knows Donald Trump is a fool. You think Mitch McConnell doesn't realize Donald Trump is a fool? I worked in the Senate for 10 years, okay? And I worked for the, essentially the Democratic, you know, uh, comparison point to Mitch McConnell, the, the Democratic version of Mitch McConnell, who was Harry Reid. I, I say that with all due respect to Harry Reid, you know, the way that people carry Mitch McConnell around is he's this scion of the Senate. Harry Reid was doing that stuff a decade plus ago and was a real master of the Senate. Now, McConnell understand Senate procedure and how to move the levers of power. But Reed and McConnell are really two sides of the same coin in, to, in terms of how they view the Senate as a, as a place where things can get done and how you do things. But anyways, let's talk about Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell, who, remember, was the guy that blocked the Supreme Court appointment of Merrick Garland, not just blocked the appointment like voted against it, but actually didn't allow it to come to the floor, stole a Supreme Court seat, right, which is something that Mitch McConnell really was never held to account for. And that is on Democratic voters, by the way, who have a chance to correct that. And I'm going to when we talk about our quick hitters later on, we'll talk about that race that McConnell's in. But Mitch McConnell saw opportunity with Donald Trump. He knows Donald Trump is a fool, but he saw opportunity. Similar to Gary Cohn, Paul Ryan. Remember Paul Ryan? He was the Republican speaker for the first two years early on. Actually said at one point, Donald Trump was unacceptable as the Republican candidate. As somebody who would, who would be carrying the masthead of the Republican Party. Donald Trump gets into power. What does Paul Ryan care about? Anybody who knows Paul Ryan cares knows his number one issue is about tax policy. And about getting getting tax code written in a way that's favorable to his worldview and his financial backers and people who've been pushing Paul Ryan for 20 years back to when he was a staffer. So Paul Ryan got on the train. John Kelly. What does John Kelly care about? Remember retired General Kelly who ended up being the president's chief of staff but before that was a homeland security director cared about immigration. All this other stuff doesn't care about. Now he's Oh, Donald Trump is woefully unprepared for office. And, you know, the, the voters have to factor in character. John, John Kelly didn't factor in character when he worked for this man for three years and enabled him and allowed Donald Trump to carry on his reign of ridiculousness and essentially wrote the game plan for how he could do that. Didn't care about that one bit. You want to know why? Because all John Kelly cared about was getting the immigration policy, working with folks like Stephen Miller to put an immigration policy in place that he cared about. I call this the parasite presidency because none of these people actually believe in Donald Trump. They believe in power and they believe in opportunity. They've leveraged the Trump presidency to get the things done that they want to get done. Now, look, you might say, well, look, that's political opportunism. They're there, that is something that we've seen in political history, and that's not something that they would be the first folks to ever do. Sure, but these folks, in many cases, have come out and said, it is an emergency. This person should not be the president anymore. It is an existential crisis that Donald Trump is the president. You telling me it took them working for him for a year to figure that out? 
I knew he was a fool before he came down that escalator in 2015 and said he was running. How can I know that? How can the 63 plus million Americans who voted against him know that? But they just came to Jesus on that. Let's even think about someone like Omarosa Manigault, who was a White House. I, I, I forget what her title was, but I believe she was a senior advisor um, in the in the Trump White House. She was obviously a senior advisor on the campaign. Omarosa, by the way, who's worked in Democratic administrations before. She was actually an advisor for former Vice President Al Gore, someone who knows her way around Capitol Hill, knows her way around the White House, understands the levers of power. She knew Donald Trump was a fool. You listen to her own account. Anthony Scaramucci, guy who's had lots of success on Wall Street. These folks all knew he was a fool, but what they cared about was power and they cared about opportunity. So they treated this presidency, this parasite presidency, as an opportunity to do the things that they wanted to do. And whatever the wreckage was, whatever the collateral damage was, to be damned. They didn't care about any of that. So when these folks come to Jesus, when the John Boltons of the world come to Jesus and they're trying to sell you a book, and they're trying to get you to believe that, oh, they've seen the light, and that now they want to, you know, John Bolton talked about he's going to vote for Joe Biden. I hope so. And he should have voted for Hillary Clinton four years ago. Because if the observations he had in the White House were true after a year and a half, two years of working for Donald Trump, John Bolton's a very smart man. You're telling me that guy had to get that close to Donald Trump to realize he was a numbskull and to realize that he was woefully unqualified for that office? Again, these folks have taken advantage of a situation, taken advantage of a moment in history where there is a real vacuum in leadership, particularly in the conservative Republican movement. Donald Trump isn't even a Republican. His entire presidency is a takeover of the vacuum at the head of the Republican Party. So what you're not seeing here, you're not seeing people who care about the country. You're, yeah, I'm sure they care about the country, but they care about their own self-interest more than they care about the country. That's the right way to frame it. So when you're talking about this and when you're putting this moment in context and you're putting the actions of people like John Bolton, like Gary Cohn, like John Kelly, like Omarosa Manigault in context, remember, they checked their ideals, they checked their values at the door the moment they walked through those gates at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and they knew exactly what they were getting into so remember that when they're trying to pass along a book try to get you to pay $25, $30 and try to get you to read 400 pages about something that you already knew and you know damn well they already knew it's the Here Comes the Pain podcast I'm your host Joel Payne we're going to continue with our conversation in just a moment here we're going to take a quick time out we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the president's rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're going to talk about the crowd. We're going to talk about his comments. And we're going to talk about what it means in terms of what you can expect from this president and how he is going to try to win in November and what his strategy, and I put that word in air quotes. This is a audio platform, but I'm putting it in air quotes. What his strategy is going to be and what we saw in Tulsa this past weekend what that portends for his strategy. So we'll be right back here on the Here Comes the Pain podcast. 
and welcome back. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. So we're going to continue with our conversation here. and We're going to shift to talking about the president's rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which we're going to have apparently a lot to talk about between now and Election Day because this president is just going to keep giving us fodder. You can say this. He does not leave us without content. So people like myself who are in the content production business, um, I, I, I would still rather have another president, but certainly leaves a lot, of, a lot of meat on the bone to chew on. So let's get into this rally. So a little bit of background here. The, the president has taken a timeout or had taken a timeout from doing the rallies that he likes to do. You know, Trump likes to go around the country and and almost barnstorm these these different cities and these locations. Typically in an election year, you would imagine that there's probably about 12 to 15 states, cities, areas that he's going to be in based on the battleground states and what the map tells you. So whether it's Michigan, we know that's going to be a key battleground, Wisconsin, New Hampshire, Georgia, North Carolina, Arizona, etc. You get it. And, and, and actually, in fairness, he will actually his next stop will be in Arizona. So that'll be a little bit more germane to the actual uh, task of trying to win a second term as opposed to whatever the hell he was doing in Tulsa, Oklahoma this past weekend. But anyway, so the president and his campaign announced about two weeks ago that they were going to do this big rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I talked about this on a previous podcast. They were going to do it on June 19th, which apparently the entire world realized that that was Juneteenth at the same time, the entire world of people who were not black. Um, I've been, I won't say I've been like actively celebrating Juneteenth. Like I haven't been, you know, buying Juneteenth cards for my friends and relatives, but I'm aware of the holiday. It's actually something that in my youth, I was a part of the NAACP and we would do annual celebrations about it. And I spoke at a Juneteenth ceremony. It's something that's very well known in the black community. It's something that I'd say again in the last decade has become a little bit more widely known. And that's all good. You know, we welcome in a lot of people to this party to make sure that we have a full, well-rounded understanding of not just American history, but African-American history. So anyways, the president and his team put this rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma on Juneteenth. Also, completely either ignoring or just not giving a damn about the fact that Tulsa was the home to probably the most infamous race riot in the history of our country back in 1921. I mean, there's been movies that have been done about this. There have been documentaries done about this. You don't have to look very hard to understand that there is a very, very complex and difficult history with race in Tulsa, Oklahoma, based on those race riots and just based on still a pretty complicated um, city that, like many cities, is segregated and is dealing with a lot of issues that came up in the past and were never fully dealt with. And that race riot was a flashpoint. And you could argue that that city has really never fully mended itself since then. So, of course, Donald Trump, as Val Deming so brilliantly said, he, you know, the country's on fire. We've got essentially a, a civil race war going on, a cold race war going on. And Donald Trump's just walking around with gasoline trying to light it up even more. The only good decision that the Trump campaign made last week was they decided to move the rally one day. They're still going to do it in Tulsa, but they moved it off of Juneteenth. Uh, apparently, the 4% of 
black supporters that the president boasts. I'm sorry, 8%, forgive me, uh, that the, the president boasts. They, they got a hold of them and they let them know that that was a real problem. So we appreciate um, their efforts to sway the leader of their party. So anyways, president is going to have this rally in Tulsa. And listen, these rallies have been very successful for the president historically in his political history. They usually draw very big crowds. They usually really bring out the best of Donald Trump is the wrong term, but they bring out the Donald Trump that that his fans and that his supporters love. He's punchy. He tends to really crystallize issues for his crowd. And look, he's going to miss people like me. and He's going to miss the mainstream media who's already out on him with a lot of his inside jokes and references and a lot of the things that he says that are just out and out offensive and wrong and um, somewhat dangerous at times, but it works for him politically. So, of course, Trump world is just trying to get to this. They're, you know, really flailing in the polls. They're down more than 10 points in some key battleground states nationally. They're down about anywhere from eight to 10 points, depending on which poll you believe. By the way, as somebody who watched an entire race at a bird's eye view and saw Hillary Clinton lead that race from day one before I joined to the day I joined the campaign in the middle of that summer to election day where she was still leading and that was still accurate. You know, don't let people tell you that all those polls were wrong. The polls were right. They just didn't capture the electoral college. But the polls actually captured the sentiment. Hillary Clinton won nationally by about three or four percentage points. She won by three million plus votes. And so, anywho... Donald Trump, he's at his rally. Um, this is where he's in his element. He gets there. His campaign, mind you, have been talking all week about, oh, they're getting so much data. They got a million ticket requests. They're, they need overflow room outside because there's so many people that are going to be there. Mind you, this is all going on in the midst of a pandemic that the president's own CDC has advised people not to gather in groups this large. He was essentially pressuring the mayor of Tulsa and the governor of Oklahoma into allowing this to happen. There were city public health officials that were begging the Trump campaign to make this an an outdoor event. Oddly enough, it probably actually would have come off better as an outdoor event. So not only would that have been the responsible thing to do in good policy, but it would have actually benefited and helped him. But, you know, don't let Donald Trump catch a good idea and try to do anything with it. He'll, he'll screw it all up. So we, we get to the, the rally. Of course, there's anticipation that there's going to be this big crowd and that Donald Trump's going to light everybody up and that this is going to be the reboot, the start to his campaign. By the way, I thought it was a little curious that he chose Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I brought this up in a previous discussion I had here on the podcast that's not typically where you would go in this environment for a relaunch. The name of the game is adding to your coalition. Like take Donald Trump and Joe Biden out of it. Just put candidate A and candidate B. The whole point is to have a bigger crowd of people in every state and nationally that like you than the other person. And often to do that, you want to expand your base. Your base, what people mean when they say your base is the people who aren't going to leave you. Donald Trump could have five different responses to the George Floyd situation that he didn't already have. That base is going to stick with him. They're not going to abandon him. 
whatever Donald Trump says they're going to do. So you really don't even, particularly for a politician like Donald Trump, who is so linked to his base, you really don't have to be caught up in following your base at their every whim and at their every discretion. You really should be focused on widening out your coalition, adding more people to it. Every president in the modern era, and probably even if you go back past that, I say modern era just to kind of keep it manageable, but if you even go back past the modern era, before the 1900s, right? Every president, the name of the game, if you are an incumbent president and you're trying to win re-election, is to add to your coalition. Is, yes, I've got people who I know are going to be with me. They're going to be, you know, by my side to the bitter end, but... I got to widen this out. I got to steal 2% here and 3% here. And I got to make a 48 point, a 48 percentage in this state turn into 51%. And you do that by adding people. And you usually signal that by the types of issues you're talking about or the types of appeals that you're making. Now, Donald Trump has talked about trying to add black folks. I've said publicly on a number of occasions, there's no way in hell he's going to add any black people. If you just look at what he has put this country through the last six weeks with his lackluster response to what happened with George Floyd and then his, you know, really aggressive extra military tactics to squash peaceful protesters. He has cut himself off from that vote. And I would say that there was a a small sliver, a small percentage of black male voters he could have gotten access to and at least got them to think about voting for him. I say now that that's completely gone based on how he's reacted. But the whole point of him being in Tulsa and why that's an issue is because just as somebody who, you know, I've worked in politics for 15 years, I've been on two presidential campaigns. The name of the game is adding to your coalition. Donald Trump is not doing a damn thing to add to his coalition. Being in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the middle of the summer, in the middle of a pandemic, having an unnecessary rally, and let's get to the kicker, that he underwhelms, underperforms, both he underperforms and the crowd underperforms in terms of showing up. So you've gone through all this fracas, you've you've broken all this glass to get to this rally that you were determined you had to have, and then you get to the doggone rally and the arena is anywhere from half to two-thirds full like you know we can look at pictures and look political twitter had a lot of fun with all the pictures i even jumped in on it too it's more about the fact that there's an art and a science to like building a political crowd (laughs) like there's a way you do it there are very well paid very well trained advanced people who understand okay i'm probably gonna get 5,000 people, 7,000 people. I'm going to get 20,000 people. So based on that, how do I make this look good? Or how do I make this look best? You'd always rather have a crowded room than a room that doesn't look crowded. The room that doesn't look crowded, that looks low energy, it looks like you don't have momentum, and it speaks any it speaks more words than anything that candidate can say on stage. And Donald Trump's team failed him for starters by creating this expectation that he was going to have all these people. And then when they set the room the way that they set it, they made him look really foolish based on all the boasts that they had been making throughout the week. And look, there's been reporting that, you know, these, there's these, you're going to hear me sound like an old man now that really doesn't know anything about the internet. Um, I know more about the internet than maybe I would give off, but I don't know what K-pop is, but apparently it's a thing. And apparently 
there are these legions of young people that have been able to like leverage computer programming in a way to make it so it seems like there's all this interest in Trump's rally that they got a million ticket requests. Apparently, they were able to create a scenario where the Trump campaign really thought that that was the case and they thought that they were getting all this data, even though the arena could only hold 19,000 people and, you know, overflow could hold a couple more thousand. They thought they were getting all this data from all these people. And of course, this is just basically somebody trolling their systems. And it could happen to Joe Biden, too, if they ever tried to have a big rally, too. So it's certainly not something that, like, only Donald Trump would be exposed to. But in this moment, with a candidate that's so dependent on this tactic and on this tactic going over well, the fact that, you know, they essentially got boat raced by these, you know, young Gen Zers that just basically screwed with the, uh, the, the systems that the campaign has set up to try to get more data and to try to track everybody who was going to be at the event because a thing you should keep in mind too is when you're doing these events it's just as important yes it's important to have people there and talk about that in a second it's important to have people there but it's more important to collect information on the people who are either going to be there who are thinking about going and maybe couldn't go or the people in the area who have an interest you learn about all these different micro trends and their behavior and what turns them out as voters and what they're interested in. And it, it is a valuable treasure trove of information. Trump's campaign team is led by this guy, Brad Parscale, who, if you listen to political media and you see the overreactions that happened after 2016, the, the thought process is that Brad is basically Karl Rove, um, you know, Ron Klain, David Axelrod, David Pluff, and the, the guy whose name I can't remember, Jim Baker, the, uh, Reagan's guy, all rolled up in the one that Brad Parscale is like the, the, the next generation of super political advisor. He's not even really the most talented like campaign manager style person in the Trump orbit. He's not, I wouldn't reduce him to say he's just a website guy. It's, you know, you look at Parscale's background, he has a background in, you know, kind of like corporate PR work and, and corporate digital campaigns, things that frankly, like I've done and I'm familiar with from my career in the private sector, but it, he's not, that doesn't make him somebody who you would put your nearly billion dollar reelection campaign in the hands of because he's good with the websites and he's good on the internets. Like that's not, that, that was a ridiculous choice to begin with. And you know, he's still the, the president's campaign manager, but in the aftermath of this this weekend in Tulsa, we've seen that the Trump campaign has already started to kind of take some steps back from him. The president reportedly called him the website guy based on some reporting that I saw earlier today. So it seems like the distancing between Trump and Parscale is already happening. But anyways, this was not a well-executed plan in terms of how you put an event together, how you want it to look aesthetically, how it pops on TV. And then you get to the content and what the president talked about. So again, he is anywhere from eight to 10 points behind nationally. You even look at places like Kansas, there's a Senate race that's probably up for grab for Democrats that under any normal circumstance with a Republican president who was had all the advantages that Donald Trump had a few months ago, you would never imagine that a state like Kansas would be in any 
jeopardy for Republicans to have to defend in a year like this where you have a Republican president at the top of the ticket. But that's where Republicans are. A state like Georgia, where Democrats are going to give them a run for those seats because Donald Trump is unpopular and because he is a liability for these Republicans to run with. So if you're in a situation like that, you need to strengthen your base. You need to strengthen the people who are going to be running with you and make sure that they take the cues from the campaign about what are they going to say? What are they going to the issues that they're going to talk about? You, you probably would have like a proactive message on healthcare. You'd have a proactive message on the economy. You'd have a proactive message on national security, on public health, given the fact that we're in the middle of a damn pandemic. You might have a message about like unity and bringing the country together since we're in the midst again of like a cold race war, right? None of that. What we got is 90 minutes of rambling from Donald Trump on everything from how he didn't really slip on the platform when he spoke to the cadets at West Point a couple weeks ago to why he had to put both of his hands under the glass of water so the water wouldn't get on his tie. And of course, they love it because he's just playing the hits because it's really just the Donald Trump show. But what Trump doesn't understand or what he doesn't care to understand beyond is the point is not to win laughs in a in a home field scenario in a room like that that's half full because we're in the middle of a pandemic and because your campaign didn't have a handle on their people in the area and who would show up, which is on the campaign, even if you're in an adverse situation like this, to know what you can deliver. But it's because Donald Trump has absolutely, positively no desire to add to that base and to grow that base. And, you know, I've spent 20 plus minutes here talking about Donald Trump. I don't think I've said Joe Biden's name once. And if I'm the Biden campaign, you know, under normal circumstances, I'd be nervous that someone like myself might be talking about this race and spend 20 minutes talking about Donald Trump without uttering my candidate's name. I think it puts them in the catbird seat right now, because unlike most reelection campaigns where the candidate the, the challenger candidate is trying to convince voters that this is not simply a referendum, right? Joe Biden would love nothing more than for every voter to consider this a binary choice between him and Donald Trump. It was the argument that Hillary Clinton lost last time because, and I would say unfairly so, she was historically unpopular. She had a lot of political baggage, um, misogyny. We'll, we'll, we'll dig into that in an episode. Uh, I got a I got a master's degree course in misogyny that I'm sure a lot of my female friends and people who listen to this podcast have known about their entire lifetime. But a lot of factors that put Hillary Clinton in a tough position to be successful four years ago. Right. Joe Biden doesn't have any of that. She had a split Democratic Party that was pissed off that Bernie Sanders kind of got back burner. Bernie Sanders coalesced very quickly behind Joe Biden this time around. Joe Biden was specifically chosen to win. He wasn't chosen based on performance. And I say this with love, and this might upset my friends who are at the Biden campaign. And this might upset my friends who are sympathetic to the former vice president. I am sympathetic to the former vice president. I think he's a good man. There was nothing performative that he did to win that primary. There wasn't a debate performance. There's not a policy position that he holds. There's not a he, he gave from what I can gather 
I can count on one hand the number of really like stemwinder speeches that he gave to really put himself in a place in a position where people would feel like, oh, this is the guy. He was outperformed by a number of his other candidates, but the one place that they couldn't outperform him was in faith from the Democratic electorate that Joe Biden could do what he is already demonstrating that he can do, which is he can be the do no harm candidate. He can be the candidate of people who said, I I can't take another four years of Donald Trump. I can't take this guy. It's annoying. It's too much. It's I I, I get into fights with my friends because of this. I I just want to go back to the time when the president was boring and when it didn't cause a riot every time there was discussion about what happened on Capitol Hill this week. Joe Biden gives people an opportunity to do that. And that was the power of his candidacy. And that's the bet that, by the way, and I'll give plaudits to my friends on in, in Biden world, that's the bet that they made. And that's the bet that they were able to win in South Carolina and take that momentum and win throughout the South and push the other candidates out the race through their electoral performances in the primary and to unite the party behind them. And it's going to drive his vice president choice, by the way, because I think we're in a situation now where it's more likely that Joe Biden is going to pick a vice president that's not going to make any waves, that's not going to create any unnecessary risk. If this race were were closer, if this was an even race or the president was up a little bit, I think you could justify the Biden campaign taking a risk with maybe a lesser known candidate that has a higher ceiling, but has a more compelling story that might bring in more people. Now, if you're the Biden campaign, your objective is to not rock the boat, to find a, a governing partner who can stand side by side with Joe Biden, be an elite surrogate who can go on TV, who can change people's hearts and minds, who can appeal to the middle, who can not offend people, and who can unite the Democratic Party and pull in some independents and moderates. It's not going to be about telling a story per se about that person. And I think that that probably advantages some of those VP candidates, some of those very qualified women who are being considered for the vice president spot in in, uh, Joe Biden's ticket. It's probably going to advantage the moment that we're in. It's going to advantage women who are being considered, who are more well-known, and who have more of a national brand already. So just wanted to spend some time talking about Tulsa. There's probably a lot more I could say. There's definitely a lot more to dig into. And I'm sure when he goes to Arizona and when he starts barnstorming around the country, he'll give us plenty of content. But again, all of it was interesting. All of it created some good content on Twitter. But fundamentally, Donald Trump and his campaign did not achieve their objective because the job was to reframe the narrative about what's at stake for his supporters. If he doesn't win this race, he didn't do that. He didn't do that effectively. And to start to change hearts and minds of people in the middle and to create doubt about Joe Biden. And he didn't do that. So there'll be many battles in this uh, race over the next five or six months. If this was the first battle of the rallies, I'd say Trump is one in the whole. This is the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Appreciate you joining me for our discussion today. We're going to take one more quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to do a couple of quick, short takes on a couple of stories that I wanted to get to. 
some maybe some things that we'll be able to get into in a lo- little bit longer form later on with some different guests and some different people who have some some better perspectives and some more complete perspectives than I do. But I just wanted to give you a taste of what I was thinking. But we're going to hit a couple of topics. We'll talk about them a little bit and then we'll close ourselves out here. So, again, it's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. Thanks so much for joining. We'll be right back. And we're back here on the Here Comes the Pain podcast. Again, I'm your host, Joel Payne. With our last few minutes here, I wanted to talk about a couple of stories that are in the news stream, give some quick background on those stories and give my takes on them. Maybe in a shorter format than I yapped on about for the other topics that we talked about here. So uh, love to hear what you think about this segment. We'd love to hear what you think about the other segments. Remember, if you're listening to the podcast, there are plenty of places where you can rate and review. You can subscribe. You can encourage others to subscribe. I'm really heartened by all the great response we're getting in the first couple of weeks of the podcast. And I know it's just the start and I'm excited about this journey. I'm excited that you guys are joining me on it, but please continue to rate, subscribe, review again, follow the podcast on Instagram at here comes the pain pod. Follow me on Twitter at P a Y N E D C. You can see me a lot on TV. I'm a political contributor for CBS news. You'll be seeing a lot of me this fall and lead up to the presidential election and those Senate elections, which we're going to get into as well with some guests coming up in the next few weeks. But anyways, thanks for all the support and we will continue to look to see what folks think about the show. All right. So let's get back to it. Let's talk about a couple of stories that are in the news stream. So sports is coming back. We've got uh, golf has been back. We got baseball that depending on who you talk to, uh, they are vomiting all over themselves by having the players and the owners not be able to agree on anything. The NBA, which actually, if you think about it, kind of started the whole coronavirus chain reaction of everything shutting down, going into quarantine. They are actively talking about being back. And you've got the NFL is talking about being back. And you've got NASCAR. So let's stop on NASCAR for a second. There's a driver. His name is Bubba Wallace. He's part of Petty Motorsports, and I'm not a gearhead, so forgive me if I um, sound like I'm faking it, because if I sound like I'm faking it, I am. I don't know a lot about NASCAR, but I do know that Bubba Wallace is a driver of the 43 car for Petty Motorsports, owned by Richard Petty, his family, and his business partners, and Bubba Wallace has been very outspoken in this social moment that we're in related to Black Lives Matter, related to understanding what corporations and what sports leagues have to do to meet the moment. Wallace challenged the folks at NASCAR to end the flying of the Confederate flag by people who are guests at NASCAR race. NASCAR itself was not flying the flag like in the middle of the grandstand, but they allowed people or they did not ban people from bringing the Confederate flag, which is, of course, loaded up with a lot of negative feelings for a lot of Americans, particularly black Americans, not just in the South, but all over the country. So Bubba Wallace takes his very public stand um, to to have that practice, that policy be prohibited at NASCAR races. By the way, Wallace is of mixed race. He is probably the most prominent driver of color on the NASCAR circuit. So over the weekend, there was supposed to be a race in Talladega, uh, Alabama, Talladega Motor Speedway. And in preparation for the race, a member of Wallace's team found a noose in 
Wallace's, I guess his, you know, the area where his car rests in between. Again, I'm not a gearhead, but essentially in in the the equivalent of the Wallace locker room. And of course, that's just abhorrent and disgusting. And um, you know, NASCAR actually founded it. It wasn't Wallace that founded it. It was someone on Wallace's team that found it and brought it to NASCAR. And NASCAR, to their credit, um, acknowledged it, talked about uh, their disgust with it, and talked about their plans to find out who did it and uh, hold them accountable. Uh, I think maybe some people took a little bit of, lang- of issue with some of the language that they used in their statement, which was a little bit more corporate and a little bit less defiant than they would have wanted. But, you know, corporations going to corporate. So um, anyways, um, the, the, the whole point here is as much as NASCAR wants to get away from their ugly past and get away from all the things that Bubba Wallace has been talking about over the last few weeks about what needs to change with the sport is very obvious that they got a long, long way to go. I don't think it would be fair to paint every NASCAR fan, to paint everybody who is a part of that NASCAR culture as being people who are compliant with this or people who are responsible for this. But there is a culture that's been created and that has allowed this attitude to fester. And I think when you see things like a noose, you see also across the grandstand or across the over the over the speedway over the weekend, there was a, you know, one of those crop duster planes that have messages tagged to the back of them. And the message said, uh, you know, something in support of the Confederate flag and it had a gigantic Confederate flag flying behind it. And so, you know, Bomani Jones, who I listen to this podcast a lot, I'm a big fan of him. Um, In my mind, hopefully maybe one day he can join us for a conversation. But he talks about how he completely believes the reformers in NASCAR who say that they want to change the sport. He just doesn't know how you change the sport when the people who are the kind of the core audience of the sport or the core, core audience of that culture have pretty much told you yeah, we ain't changing. We don't want to change. And so this is a real identity crisis for NASCAR because as much as, you know, whether this noose was, you know, a real threat, which obviously it should be taken very seriously as a threat, or whether someone was just trying to be funny and just joking around, which, again, it's not funny, it's clear it's reflective of an attitude that still exists with a lot of people in that sport. And worse yet, it's very likely that the person who left that noose was somebody who was a close part of the NASCAR inner circle, was either a crew member or, God forbid, a driver or somebody with access to, like, that all-access area, that, that um, you know, that, that area where not a lot of people, like, not someone like myself couldn't just walk up in there and, like, leave a note or do something like that. It had to be somebody who was had intimate knowledge of the inner workings of the Speedway and had access so the fact that someone had access, that reflects that it's, it probably is more likely like an inside job. It's somebody who like works for NASCAR or works for one of the other teams. It's a real problem. But anyways, uh, salute to Bubba Wallace for all he's doing to try to bring his sport back into um, the 21st century. Um, but this is an unfortunate reminder that there is a lot of work that lies ahead of Bubba as he wages this war. Wish him a lot of luck. And uh, certainly we'll be watching to see if the culture in NASCAR really changes. Next story I want to hit is kind of a more of a pop culture story. We've been covering a lot of heavy stuff, political stuff, which is the core of what you're going to hear from me. But 
you know, this is somewhat political and social, but it's it's really is a pop culture story. Um, most people have heard of J. Cole, who is the uh, at least Grammy nominated. I believe he's probably won some Grammys. I should know that. Sorry about that for not knowing that. But, you know, J. Cole is a very popular rapper, um, native of North Carolina, Fayetteville, North Carolina. Um, has a lot of best-selling songs and albums and really someone who is probably one of the more well-known rappers over the last five to ten years. So J. Cole is mired in this controversy with this other rapper who goes by the name No Name. No Name, um, I believe, is Chicago-based. Again, I'm, I'm not not a culture writer, so forgive me for being a little bit less than confident there, but No Name I've listened to a couple of her songs. I'm actually a big fan of her music. She has great music, but more notably, she's an activist. She's somebody who, who has been very outspoken, not just in this moment, not just the last, say, six weeks. She's someone who's been very outspoken for years and someone who really, I think probably if you asked her what she was, she'd fancy herself more as an activist than an artist, than a rapper um, or a singer. So anyways, um, no name, about a week and a half ago or so, put out a tweet where she really called out the um, you know some of the people and how they chose to protest related to what happened with George Floyd and you know she called out particularly people who were on the same side of the issue as her but who maybe have not carried the same ideals that she's carried and I want to read part of the tweet here just to give you a sense of how this started and, and 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 how we got to this give me one second here i'm gonna pull this up and then we're gonna we're gonna talk about it okay so we got the tweet up here from no name and you know i'm gonna try to try to keep this a pg 13 podcast so you can listen with your your, your kids or some young folks and maybe explain it to them but i'll try to paraphrase here i'm not trying to do respectability politics just trying to make sure the folks you know if you got your kids around i don't, don't want to be um, making making your kids offended by anything. Okay, so essentially the tweet says, and I'm paraphrasing here, it says, poor black folks all over the country are putting their bodies on the line in protest for our collective safety and y'all fel- favorite selling top Raptors not even willing to put up to tweet. And then she talked about certain people's discographies be about the black pl- plight, but they're nowhere to be found. Now, that was a missive that could have gone to a lot of people not just in rap, but in music and in, in entertainment and in politics. Hell, that could have been for someone like myself. That could have been for a lot of people. J. Cole, who again is a very, very well-known, much more well-known, you know, broadly across the, the, the country and across the world than No Name, took that as somewhat of a direct shot at himself. And so Cole, uh, after a day or two, put out a record that, you know, we, we do a lot of this kind of like diss track thing where we call everything a diss track. And honestly, I think we do a bad job of titling what's a diss track and what's not a diss track. Like not everything is a diss track. Sometimes it's just a response. It's just, hey, this is a catalyst. I had something on my mind. Somebody did a thing. It inspired me to write something. J. Cole was inspired um, in, the, in, the, in the more negative uh, construction of that to respond to no name, what he presumed was something that was aimed at him and essentially, you know, kind of owned up to, yeah, you know, there's people who know more about this. I want them to teach me. There were a lot of people 
that took offense at J. Cole's response. And I, I gave a very quick synopsis there. He, he actually did a really, I thought a really good song, like just in terms of like the art of putting a song together, whether or not you like agreed with it or not, but he did a whole song about it. But you know, the, the high points were, I, I think um, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't feel like he was well read on all the issues that people were talking about, but he was learning and he was asking for patience and understanding. He did it with his, you know, kind of J. Cole persona and swag. And people took that one as a very sharp edged response to no name. They also took it as Cole using his platform right now in this moment where everybody's kind of focused on beating down the oppressors and stopping oppression that J. Cole will use his platform to essentially loudly publicly disagree with this black woman who is expressing herself. And it surfaced a lot of issues around, you know, perceptions about misogyny, uh, misogyny within the black culture and whether or not, you know, um, black men understand the experience of black women. And, you know, I've had a number of conversations with black women professionally who I know, also black women personally who I know. And listen, their opinions on this range, too, from very much in agreement with the criticism of Cole to maybe cutting him some slack. Um, I don't think there's a monolithic opinion here, but I do think that it certainly surfaced some tensions that have been out there related to patriarchy in the black community. So anyways, no name response actually puts together a really like just a really, really good response track. It was a great beat and really answered back to, to J. Cole and 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 essentially highlighted the fact that what she was tweeting about in the first place, J. Cole, in her mind, essentially validated her position. Again, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a lyricist, so I'm probably not the person to come to for like in-depth breakdown of the lyrics but it actually turned into this creator on creator uh, back and forth which i'm kind of here for the art also the art was great it was two great songs two great tracks that came out of it and i think it actually surfaced a really important issue and it, it's something that i know that is problematic um, within the black community some of the kind of old school traditional views of kind of patriarchy and black men and black women and not listening to black women um, certainly surfaced a lot of that. And I will say as a black man, understanding and acknowledging my privilege, I am not going to try to give a full dissertation on what my early perceptions are of, of that whole back and forth. Again, I'm a comment on the art and I'm just kind of telling you what happened and telling you what the implications were. But I will say it forced me and some of the reactions I got forced me to challenge what maybe my gut instinct reaction was as a man, as a black man, and to maybe listen to what my female colleagues, friends, loved ones are saying, as opposed to just having like a hot take to respond to it. And I think ultimately, if that's my reaction and if that's the result of this, and if a lot of other men take that you know response to it, that perspective to it, then along with just maybe being like a messy back and forth. This did a lot of people a lot of good, but stay tuned. Um, I'm working on some guests, working on some people who can contribute to the conversation to talk a little bit more proactively about music and talk a little bit more about some of these issues of misogyny that get played out in music and, um, you know, how that impacts 
um, the cause, how that impacts the effort to beat down oppression, and what's some of the stuff that needs to be done within the black community to surface that and to deal with that appropriately. So stay tuned, but we got some good art out of it. Um, we got some good discussion and some good things to chew on about it. And uh, it got your host right here to listen. So at the end of the day, I think it could have been worse. And then the final thing I want to hit on here, and um, again, lots going on here. It was kind of hard to just pick a couple of topics and stories to get into because there was so much happening. Um, as a result of the moment that we're in, and you know, I've had a lot of people tell me they don't know what to call this moment. Um, it seems somewhat minimizing to call it a moment, and I certainly don't mean to do that. But uh, if you guys have a, a good idea of how I should like try to catch all, explain what we are in the midst of right now, I'd love to hear it from you. And so I can make sure that I'm projecting the, the right descriptor and the capturing the right urgency for what we are living through right now. But anyways, um, in response to the, the world that we're in right now, we've seen a lot of brands start to react and start to have kind of the uh-oh moment, realizing that, hey, we've got some problematic stuff that we're putting out here. In a lot of cases, by the way, they knew they were problematic for a while. Like, it didn't take, again, a very serious and terrible thing that happened to George Floyd to let you know that, like, calling the Washington Redskins the Washington Redskins is outdated and is racist. Or having Confederate statues up all around the country is offensive because, one, they lost. Two, these are people who oppressed my ancestors and who, if they had their way, would have kept me oppressed. And I got to drive across bridges that got their names on them. Or I got to go to schools that are named after them. Or I got to, you know... Uh, you know, dip and dodge around monuments when I'm going and looking at Martin Luther King, I got to go dip and dodge around other monuments with people who, who their entire ideology included me not being a part of civil society or not being respected in civil society. So you have to understand the perspective of the people who are looting and, and who are knocking down those statues. Um, by the way, some of the aim on, on, on them statues is a little off. Like uh, I want to have a, a larger discussion about, whether or not we can cancel everybody like i see we're trying to take down the teddy roosevelt statue they tried to take down ulysses s grant which i'm gonna just tell you as a history nerd who just watched that history channel special on ulysses s grant i was none too happy about uh, i have more to say about that later but anyways the story that i'm referring to here you, you can see i like to do asides the story that i'm referring to here is about aunt jemima which of course is the noted pancake mix. Aunt Jemima is like a staple in most households, ain't just black households. It's like most households in America for like decades at least, maybe even over a century. It's a part of the Quaker Oats family of brands. And obviously, given the moment that we're in, they were getting called out on you know, this woman who, you know, you, it really doesn't take a lot of analysis to realize that the, the image that is projected of Aunt Jemima on the front of the pancake box comes from a, a long gone era and is not exactly how we do things anymore. But as with many things over time, um, we get used to some of the everyday things that offend us and they just kind of go on either unchallenged or lightly challenged. 
Well, we're in a moment where there is nothing that is being lightly challenged. Everything is being challenged. And so Quaker Oats decided that they were going to make this big public proclamation about changing the name of Aunt Jemima from Aunt Jemima and changing the the, the, the brand and, and, you know, really just turning over the entire brand there. I would imagine that some related brands like Uncle Ben's um, are probably going to go under similar facelifts and um, name rebranding efforts. Again, I did this stuff in corporate America. There's probably corporations that are, or rather there are probably uh, PR firms that are working overtime right now to help these corporations figure out how to turn over this brand and how to be with the times right now. And there are a lot of those problematic brands. We saw Lando Lakes, which makes the butter. They removed the indigenous person, the Native American, from the front of their container of butter. Now, some people will call out, they still got the land on there, which is just as problematic as having kind of the image, the kind of uh, historical image of this indigenous person, which is not fully historically accurate or does not capture the whole picture and surfaces some real problematic stuff. So anyways, these brands are getting called out. And look, I did a TV appearance about this this week where I talked about the, you know, the brand makeovers that are happening. I talked about it from the perspective of a political strategist and also the perspective of someone who's done this stuff in corporate America. Obviously, yes, it's something that is long overdue. These uh, remakes, these rebranding efforts are things that should have been taken care of and should have been corrected a long time ago. Unfortunately, it took the life of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, and it took the rage of a nation that's been locked away for three months with coronavirus and people who've been pounding the pavement on the streets for the last six weeks. It took all that to get to this moment where these these old stereotypes are starting to fall. And look, that is a good thing. But the point I will make about this and... I hope it's the predicate to a longer conversation later is I worry that we're entering the Kaepernick zone. And I mean that by this, when I say the Kaepernick zone, what I mean is what Colin Kaepernick was kneeling for was about police violence was about men, usually men, but men and women of color who were losing their life at the hands of police officers who were overly aggressive, who were looking at people of color, particularly black people, as threats, and who devalued the life of black Americans and black people that they stopped when, whether it was for a busted taillight or stop and frisk on the street or whatever. That's what Colin Kaepernick was kneeling about. It became about the flag and about saluting our troops. And my grandfather fought for the country and we should stand up and salute the flag. And it, it, be, it essentially diverted this entire conversation away from what Colin Kaepernick was actually protesting, which was police violence against black people. This moment was founded on police violence, unfounded, over the top, overly aggressive, police violence and indefensible police actions against black people. It's not about changing the, the, the brand of the pancake mix that we have or the butter mix. Like that's great. And that's fine. And I support that. I'm supportive of taking the Confederate flag out of NASCAR and taking Robert Lee's statue down. That's all good. 
Those are things that should have been done a long time ago, and I'm happy they're happening now. But let's not forget why we're here. We're here because black people are being killed in the streets. And because it took George Floyd having his life taken away from him in eight and a half minutes, in eight minutes and 46 seconds, it took that for white allies and and white folks to realize that it was no longer good enough to just be non-racist or to be in the middle, that you had to pick a side and you had to put a jersey on. Either you're going to be actively anti-racist or you're going to be actively in favor of allowing a system that has been taking advantage of and overburdening black bodies and over over leveraging, um, you know, force and over leveraging law enforcement against black people. Right. You had to make a decision about that. That's why that's why we're in the moment we're in right now is because people got fed up allegedly in the moment right now of seeing black bodies be killed on display in front of America by police. So it's fine as a side, you know, benefit seems like the wrong word, but as a, as a, as a, as a side thing that has happened is something that has happened as a consequence of this. That's the word I'm looking for that these old racist oppressive structures have fallen I think anybody with any common sense realizes that these things should have fallen a long time ago and that these brands should have been challenged a long time ago to fix this and we haven't even got to really the hard stuff yet like the Cleveland Indians and the Washington Redskins and the because it's the money behind it right like I'm sure if you could convince Daniel Snyder that like the money was with changing from Washington Redskins to like Washington non-offensive name. Like that's probably a conversation that you could start, but he's convinced that the money is with staying with the brand. So people who want to fight that, they're going to continue to kind of fight the money and fight the economics of it. And that's all good, but let's not forget why we're here. We're here for George Floyd, for Breonna Taylor, for Ahmaud Arbery, for Trayvon Martin, for Tamir Rice. That's what we're here for. So as long as folks keep that as their center and keep that and keep keep focused on that, I think there are a number of other good things aside consequences that are, are good collateral damage to also come down as racist structures along with it. But let's not lose sight of why we're here. Again, this was the latest episode of the Here Comes the Pain podcast with your host, Joel Payne. I've really had a good time talking to you about all the things that are going on in the world, talking a little in depth about some other big issues earlier in the podcast and doing some quicker, shorter opinions on some other ones towards the end. We're still tinkering with the format and we're still working on how to make sure that this is a good podcast experience for you. I love to hear from you. Get at me on Twitter at P A Y N E D C on Twitter. Get at me on Instagram at here comes the pain pod on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you. Love to hear how the show is impacting you and, and, and how it's, Uh, giving you some content during a period where we're starved for a lot of content right now. Really appreciate all the support. Appreciate you listening. And uh, 
We'll get back at this again soon. Planning on having some more content for you at the end of this week. But for now, I'll say peace. I'll get up out of here. And I'll thank you for joining the Here Comes the Pain podcast. Take care and God bless.